never in the history of American commerce has there been companies that are so valuable from a just market cap perspective that were also so dispensable in people's lives. Because typically when you have a company that is just a behemoth like Standard Oil, it's because oil is absolutely essential to the economy or American steel. Uh, steel was needed to basically grow all the cities and build all the railroads. It was incredibly indispensable. And that's where all of their value came from. Uh, Facebook is worth twice ExxonMobil, but it's entirely dispensable. You're listening to the Almost 30 Podcast, hosted by Krista Williams and Lindsay Simsek. Almost 30 started as a conversation about the transition from our 20s to our 30s. But then we realized life is full of transitions. So we expanded our mission. We are an intuition-led, wellness-focused lifestyle podcast that promises to deliver authentic conversations, diverse points of view, and insights rooted in optimism, growth, and intention. The Almost 30 Nation community is a group of purposeful dreamers who are smart, passionate, and always seeking the full potential in every aspect of their lives. At Almost 30, we're making magic together. We dream it, and then we do it. Thanks so much for tuning into the Almost 30 Podcast. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Almost 30 Podcast. Hello, We're kind of like a circus. <laughs> Hello and welcome. <laughs> Hello, I have Hello. a top hat on. Hello, imagine. I did want to be a part of the circus when I was little. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Circuses always freaks me out. I always thought I was more about them. A hundred percent. But I saw like the, I always wanted to be like the flex, flexible, bouncy girl. Mm. You know what I mean? As you do. Was never that ever. (laughs) I was actually told I was not flexible and couldn't do those things in gymnastics class. Yeah. I thought that when I was little, I was like, I'm not flexible. And flexibility is trained. Trained. Anyone can be Gumby. Yes. So anyway. Doc Genfit, she's our flexibility guru. Um, hey guys, I want your advice. Uh, when you go to the chiropractor, should you be in pain after? Mm. I'm, I'm actually in actual pain. My back kills. I it feels like a little, it's just like right in the middle of my back. But also I feel like it's this anger that I have. <laughs> Don't actually, Honestly. it might be emotional. I feel like this anger is like hanging yeah. out in the middle of my back. Oh, that's the back of my heart. Oh. Was it, what does that mean? Just the back of your heart doesn't get a lot of attention. Huh. I wonder if you roll roll out your back and cry at the same time, maybe it'll release. Um, (laughs) So that's me. I also wanted to just share something too um, that I got a message from someone within our community that I wanted to just share with you guys. I thought it was beautiful and inspirational from Joanna. She said, hey, y'all, just wanted to send you a little personal antidote and say thank you for all you do. And the episode with Sarah Vermont, you said something along the lines of, you have the most leverage and bargaining power when a company has given you an offer letter. And that is the, the best time to ask for a raise. What you guys said was so poignant that it stuck with me while I was going through the hiring process. And with that, I was able to double my base salary and increase my OTE by 80%. I'm in a sales position, so this is a big deal. Thank you, for, thank you for all you do and having the foresight to have sh- this show and Sarah on. Uh, casual, doubled the base salary and increased the OTE by 80%. Huh? Send me a little bit of that. <laughs> no, truly. We take about 5%. No, it's, it's actually, this makes me realize that like the right people 
yep. are listening or finding the content that really resonates with them. You know, because sometimes we can we can all get in our heads about like, is this what people want? And it's just, I don't know, the way the universe works, it's like they will find. Yep. They will find you and the right people will listen and get what they need. And that's just really that is fucking and that's badass. What you know, it's just in those small things, again, with building a life that you love or, or changing your life or changing your eating habits or whatever. It's all the tiny steps. It's all the tiny actions, the tiny micro movements. It's those micro impacts mm-hmm. with people that are the most relevant. I mean, doing that for one person is all you need, you know? And like the power of, cause I'm sure she thought about it before, right? Like that she wanted this. And then the power of actually hearing, you know, Sarah talk about it hearing us kind of discuss it and flesh it out with her and maybe give examples of when we've been able to stand in that in our lives gives people a confidence. It's, I don't know. I just feel like even though we're not, we don't know her, there is like a relationship happening where we're able to kind of transmit this conversation and energy to give her more confidence to do that. Yep. You know, like there's just something to that, that I can't really articulate right now, but I don't know. I love that. I love that we can be there for each other without actually having to know each other. And it, it translates into these really like transformative moments of like, oh my God, I can do that. You know, there's so much with messaging where it doesn't resonate until it's supposed to. And so many things I've heard again and again, but it doesn't make sense until it does, until I'm ready. And I feel like with relationships that I've had too, a lot of advice that you know, I've seen people that I love and know get the same advice repeatedly and never apply it or use it until something clicks and then they do it. Right. You know, and I'm sure that's definitely happened to me too, but it's just, yeah, it's just so interesting how messaging hits people at the right time. And this episode is going to be major. Major. I cannot wait to share it with you. I heard Cal on the Ritual podcast, um, probably sometime this year. It's another amazing episode. Ritual is one of our favorite. I just love the way he conducts his interviews, his vocabulary. And Cal is an absolute gem. Uh, The work that he's doing is so impactful and powerful. And he just says it like it is with a very clear opinion that I really, really appreciate. There have been a variety of books that he's written that have greatly impacted us. And we talked about almost all of them. Mm -hmm. He wrote uh, his newest book, Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World. Can anyone relate? We really dug into deep work, which made such an impact on us. Deep work rules for focused success in a distracted world, uh, world. He also wrote So Good They Can't Ignore You, How to Be a High School Superstar, How to Become a Straight A Student, How to Win at College. And Man, the research that goes into these books is something I really appreciate because I think, you know, a lot of people are writing books now and from their own experience, but when there's this added layer of the research and the science to back up what he's talking about really drives home this point of, for example, you know, cleaning up like the digital clutter in your life so that you can go deeper, whether it's in relationships or in, you know, pursuing your career or making something actually happen uh, or learning something. So yeah, I just, I love talking to him. He's so smart. I thought I was going to be like a li- nervous. Same. Cause he's so smart. I love when he's like, oh, this is so cute. <laughs> what did he so say? So cute when they ask questions. Oh no, he did say oh. No, he was a doll. Yeah. He was a doll. A doll. Oh my God. An actual G. I, the book that impacted me the most that he, he's written was Be So Good They Can't Ignore You. 
And I think that this book is so important and relevant for our community and for a lot of the people that we interact with on a daily basis, because I feel like our generation was fed the information that we should follow our passion. And I did that a few times and it didn't work. But in the in the book, Be So Good They Can't Ignore You, Kel talks about how that is just too simplistic and it's flawed because it doesn't capture how people build careers that are satisfying. And basically that passion is dependent on two core assumptions being true. And one is that the person has identified the career or like the passion. So a lot of people don't have the passion identified. So that is assuming that they have a passion identified that they can do. And then two is that they would want that to be their career. So there's something that's very different between your work and your career. So thinking about those two things, those would have to be true if you wanted to make that your full-time job. And we don't have a lot of evidence to prove that this is common or that this is something that happens naturally. And then really the overarching theme, not the overarching theme, but another theme within that is assuming that you will love the passion if it's your job. Mm Mm-hmm things really change when your passion becomes your job. It becomes, there There are parts of it that aren't always fun. And so it may change the way you view your passion. Yeah, once you see behind the curtain, it might, some people get so scared. They're like, wait, this isn't what I thought it would be. Yeah. Yeah. And there was parts, the the parts within it that really he talks about as something that you could do to have a fulfilling career to focus on our autonomy. So autonomy within your role being very important mastery. So having a sense of mastery within what you're doing, having an impact on the world, having connection with others and having connection with others. And those are all correlated to having a job that we love. I think it's really, really relevant for especially like the generation kind of entering the workforce now, you know, in their early twenties, mid twenties, and just putting into perspective, like how they can gradually cultivate this like pursuit and passion rather than just feeling like that it's like innate, you know what I mean? That you don't have to kind of do anything to feed it or nurture it. But I just, I loved, I loved talking to him. MIT graduate, come on. I know, MIT is a genius to be honest. What the heck? But yeah, we're curious, you know, I'm excited to have a larger conversation with the community, especially about digital minimalism because- the way in which we communicate with the community is through digital means, like through our phones and Instagram and through Apple podcasts and, you know, how, how we can just be a bit more thoughtful about, you know, how we use this inevitable, you know, mode of communication and how we can just kind of allow ourselves this space to focus more, whether it's on just, maybe it's like focusing more, giving more time to like your emotional state and your emotional body. I sometimes think like diving into the digital is like a way to numb out and not really deal with what's going on or quite literally focusing on work that you need to get done. So we go into all of that in this interview and he gives us like really tactical steps that you can start today to make a difference. Yeah, it really is so relevant for our generation and for us to think about within our lives. And basically the argument is that social media and smartphones and the increased connectivity through the internet are distracting us from leading fulfilled lives. Um, So Cal Newport is a tenured professor of computer science at Georgetown University 
in, in addition to his academic work, he has written a bunch of amazing books that we talked about. And he's also been published in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Economist, The Financial Times, The Guardian, and he is a dedicated digital minimalist. Mm. No social media accounts, baby. I mean, that is the point I love icon. the most. True icon. The most. But but such a such a kind person. So kind. He's working on an awesome new book now that he kind of referenced. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that we'll have him on the podcast again. So mm-hmm. Cal Newport, everybody. Yeah, go to calnewport.com. Uh, you can see all of his books, media events, and his blog. Y'all. His blogs. Yeah. Cash, cash money. Cash money. And if you haven't got tickets, our live show, December 7th, Come on, come one, come all. It is going to be the best. It's going to be our last show of the year on the West Coast. We have Shan Booty. She is a intimacy expert and she is a blast. You can check her out on Instagram at Shan Booty, S-H-A-N-B-O-O-D-Y. And we will have some very special surprises in store for you. Mm-hmm. So Dynasty Typewriter, get tickets at almost30podcast.com slash tour. Yeah, and we'll see you in Miami on December 12th with Nikki Novo. So if you are in the... State of Florida. Come on yes. down. Or Georgia. Or, or Georgia. Georgia line, baby. Um, we would love to see you and hug you and just spend some time with you. Nikki is an incredible intuitive. She is the author of The Final Swipe, also hosts The Final Swipe podcast, and has really made an impact on Kristen and I in recent readings that have come to fruition. And we just can't wait to tap into our all of our intuitions and just kind of strengthen that muscle. Yep. And if you are interested in starting a podcast or have a podcast and want to market and grow and monetize, we have your podcast pro. So your podcast pro, Y-O-U-R, podcastpro.com is relaunching in January and it is going to be incredible. So stay tuned for more information on that, but be sure to look out for that update soon. Thanks for listening. We love you. And we'll read a review on the other side. Bye. More so excited to have you. I was telling you before, your work is just so poignant and so important. And our community, our fans, Lindsay and I are fans. And I had someone reach out to me a few weeks ago and they didn't know we were interviewing you. And they were like, sent me a picture of, of deep work. And they were like, this is one of the most important books of our generation. He's amazing. Mm-hmm. And then I got to brag and say, we were meeting you in person. <laughs> so you, you know, my mom, that's what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Mom she's, gave us a call. Yeah. Like, this is the book of our generation. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> she sends out the text like a couple of weeks before you go on podcast. <laughs> she's like, I promise you're going to love it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're just so excited to have you here and reading, you know, we can start with deep work, reading deep work. I realized that I've literally never done deep work in my life. I don't think. And I feel like I'm craving it now and I'm really Mm -hmm. needing it. And as I was saying before, I think, you know, a lot of the people in our community are really on the cusp as you were of having technology be such an integrated part of our life. And now we're transitioning where it is more. And so that now it's really pivotal and important, but I would love to start and talk about where'd you get the theory of deep work? Like, where were you, were you working one day? I I know you're a computer programmer as your background and you also teach. Where did you have that thought where you're like, oh, this is like the difference between actual skills that are transferable and skills that are not? Well, so deep work had had always played a big role in my professional life. Uh, So I'm a, a theoretical computer scientist, which means I prove theorems essentially for a living. I have to stare at whiteboards and make math do good things. So during my training, it was everywhere. So I did my training in the theory group at MIT. And there is one of the few places where 
the ability to focus is a tier one skill. I mean, it's something that people recognize as being really important. It's something that people are proud of. It's crucial to success in that field. So actually the big revelation for me was not so much that deep work existed or that it was important, but was the fact that it was relevant so much more broadly than I thought. So I thought I was in this very niche, somewhat unusual idiosyncratic circumstances. I'm at MIT staring at whiteboards, you know, trying to trying to solve theorems. And, and as I got into this topic, uh, more generally, how do people actually succeed in their careers? How do people actually gain autonomy and control over their careers? It's when I began to realize that the scope for which deep work applied began broadening and broadening until I was, uh, it came to this idea that actually this is kind of fundamental to most of the knowledge economy. So it's something I knew about. But what was a surprise to me was how broadly it applies. Mm. You mentioned training too, because I think that's what stood out to me as it relates to myself, where I think a lot of people, and I'll just speak for myself, where it's like, maybe I'm just not that type of person that's mm-hmm. able to do that. But you mentioned in the book that it's a skill that must be trained. Yeah. So, you know, for people to understand what that takes, can you kind of go into that and what that looks like? Because I think practice, consistency, and also like the fact that it might be hard. <laughs> I think our generation and the one below us, I have my brother and the one below us where it's like, they want to be happy. They want it to flow. They want it to be easy. It's like, where is that time? And why is it so important where it is kind of hard and sticky and, yeah. and takes a lot of dedication? Well, it, it's a key distinction, right? The, it's easy to think about something like deep work and think this is a habit. It's like flossing my teeth. Of course, I know how to, how to concentrate. I just need to spend more time doing it. And, and as you pointed out, that mindset is a trap because it really is more like a skill, like playing the guitar or something like this. Now, you can understand why you would mix this up because unlike other skills, it's not complicated. So there's not a lot of complicated machinery to master here. There's not a lot of complicated processes. It's just focusing. We all seem like we know how to focus. Uh, but it turns out that this is something that you actually have to really acclimatize to. I mean, it's something that you really have to get used to. And so what happens a lot when you do this miscategorization is you say, okay, I, I, I like this idea, focus. Uh, maybe I should do more of this. It seems like it's a great thing. You try it and it goes terribly. Uh, you're, you're uncomfortable. You can't concentrate. The, the phone is sort of searing uh, its laser eyes into the back of your head. <laughs> you can't ignore it. And you come away thinking, okay, maybe I'm just not a deep work person. That thought has probably turned more people away from the skill than any others. I'm just not a deep work person. And I always say, actually, the right way to think about it is, let's say you have never really exercised, and then you go for a run, and it feels terrible, and you don't get very far, and you're very slow. You want to conclude, oh, I'm not a running person, because look how slow of a runner I am compared to this person over there. You'd say, oh, I I need to train. And so that's absolutely the mindset with deep Mm -hmm. work. Our brains, the human brain in particular, is capable of remarkable sustained concentration. But this is something that really has to be built up to over time. And so it's one of the big ideas I try to push in that book is this is almost like a superpower if you can master it, but you have to be willing to put in the time to master it. Do you think that the the type of jobs, the job industry today has changed where less jobs require deep work? Or do you feel like, because I think about a lot of the ones in the industry that we're in or the industry that are adjacent to us as it relates to social media and things like that. Do you think that deep work is becoming less important or more important? I think it's becoming more important, and this actually surprises people. So why is deep work valuable? Well, first of all, it helps you learn complicated things quickly. 
So if you are very comfortable turning on intense sustained concentration, that's actually exactly the cognitive behavior you need to master something that's not obvious to you in the first place, right? You need sustained concentration to actually bring your mind to the process called deliberate practice, which is crucial for mastering complex things. That's a huge advantage in almost any field. The other advantage is it allows you when you need to produce cognitive output. So something that you think of in your mind and put down and put it out there, you can produce it much faster and at much higher levels of value if you do it with real intensity. And so I think we we tell ourselves a story often that if your job is not explicitly centered on long thinking, if you're not a novelist or a, a professor or like a mathematician or something like this, that a deep work is not so important. But when I survey the knowledge work landscape, it seems to me that uh, it's becoming more competitive the more rote and routine and automated work is being outsourced or replaced or out- automated. The com- competition is really intense. And in almost every job in this field, if you can concentrate intensely, so pick things up quickly, produce at a really fast rate, produce really high-value cognitive output, it's a huge competitive advantage. And so this is actually the, the mismatch that's at the foundation of this book, is this notion that deep work is arguably getting more valuable for the reasons that I'm talking about while at the same time, for other reasons, it's getting more rare. Mm. Those other reasons being technology, uh, distracting technology in particular, and some changes in the way we work. And so I see it as a huge supply and demand opportunity. Something is becoming more valuable at the same time that it's becoming more rare, which means if you systematically cultivate that, you're going to get a disproportionately higher price for your abilities. Speaking of that technology and the distractions that seem to just be multiplying by the day, can you speak to like the science behind what's happening, why we cannot get enough of the screens and how it's really cutting our desire for the other of deep work, undistracted, not distracted work? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, so there's two different dynamics going on, right? So there's They look similar, but the underlying dynamics are differently. So there's what's happening in our life outside of work, which I more or less would summarize by our relationship with our phones. And then there's what's happening within the world of knowledge work, which I I roughly summarize with Slack and email. And it seems very similar because in both cases, you have a technology that's fragmenting your attention, something that you have to come back to again and again and again. It breaks up time into these small slivers in between these various checks. Both of these sources of distraction have issues. They both have different underlying causes. And so my more recent book, Digital Minimalism, tries to get at why do we look at our phone more than we want to outside of the world of work? I'm working on a new book now. I'm sort of in the manuscript stage and it has a working title of A World Without Email. And that's really getting into what's happening in work. Why do we use email so much? Why are we on Slack so much? Why did we start working this way? They look the same. They both have similar consequences, which it makes deep work very difficult to actually make time for. But the forces driving each are actually quite different. I guess uh, the forces of deep work and then email and Slack, right, are quite different, right? Well, yeah. So the forces that draw us to, let's say, a smartphone when you're just sitting around at a friend's house is is quite different than what draws us back to Slack once every five minutes. Okay. What is that? Mm. Well, so we can start with the the personal life, technology you know, outside of outside of work. And this was the big observation that led me to my more recent book is that you know, I had been talking for years skeptically about some of the new consumer-facing technologies of the smartphone era. And for the most part, I was dismissed as being eccentric. 
right? I would, I would express skepticism about social media. The fact that I didn't use social media was seen as if I um, was essentially sort of an odd guy. Back in 2016, for example, I wrote an op-ed for the Times in which I said some negative things about social media. Uh, I think I said young people overestimate how important their social media presence is for their career. And the out the uh, I guess outrage, maybe not outrage, but the the shock <laughs> was was so large that the Times actually had to commission a response op-ed for the next weekend. No way. The social media manager for monster.com or something to come on and say, okay, don't worry, you don't have to listen to to Professor Newport about this. <laughs> They're like, just yeah. kidding. <laughs> just Ignore kidding. this. Yeah. I mean, it was it was you would you would huh. think that I was trying to outlaw uh, baseball or something like this. <laughs> But then that started the shift. Really around early 2017, I noticed that people were getting uneasy in a way that they hadn't been uneasy before about, in particular, their relationship with their phones. That shifted, and it shifted relatively suddenly. And so one of the things I wanted to do, and this became the foundation for my most recent book, was to figure out what happened, mm-hmm, yeah. what we should do about it. And what I discovered is that for most people the reason they were getting uneasy about their relationship with their phones was not really what they were doing on the phone. It's not the, the specific activity when they're looking at their phone, so maybe you know, texting a friend or updating a social media post. Specific activities were not negative. It was the total amount of time. Mm. This seemed to be the shift. It was not the what, but how much. The fact that they were doing this way more than they knew that was useful, way more than they knew was healthy, to the exclusion of things that they knew were more important. And at some point around early 2017, people basically couldn't ignore it anymore. Said, Why am I looking at this so much? Why am I looking at this so compulsively? And so I got into it. Why do we look at something more than we want to? This seems unusual, right? And we look at this more than we want to. Why do we do this? No one's forcing us to. And the storyline that came up was actually quite interesting because it turns out if you go back and study our relationships with smartphones and social media in particular, we didn't used to look at them all the time. Even after the iPhone was popular, even after major social media platforms like Facebook were popular, we did not look at our phone all the time. That shift is actually more recent than most people actually remember. And if you trace down the timeline of this shift, you see that it corresponds quite closely to Facebook preparing for their IPO. This is the first major social media company to to go for it. This is getting good. Mm. Yeah. Exactly where I was Here trying go. to go. Not to be too conspiratorial, but it's actually it's 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 pretty well documented. Um, and so what happened when Facebook wanted to go towards their IPO is they had the shift from user acquisition mode, which is what you do when you're a startup, into revenue generation mode. And to get the revenue numbers where they needed to be for the the price that they wanted for their initial offering, they had to, above all else, figure out how to get their existing user base to look at Facebook more every day. That's the foundation of getting their revenue numbers up. Because if you look at it more, they get more data from them and have more opportunities to sell them advertisements. So this was the big issue. How does Facebook get their large user base to stop doing what they were doing at the time, which was, oh... I occasionally post things. I occasionally go on to see what my friends posted. It's kind of interesting, right? I mean, Facebook initially was just Web 2.0 with a nicer interface. How do we get them to check this all the time? And the transformation they made was incredibly impactful and completely underestimated, which was they changed the social media experience so that it was no longer about, I post things, you post things, let me see what you posted. And it was instead about an incoming stream of social approval indicators. And the, the key innovation that was the tip of the spear here was the like button, which was not there in early Facebook. 
There's actually a kind of a weird innovation if you think about it. There's nothing natural about it. You don't see things like that in, in the early Web 2.0 era. But that changed everything because now you had a reason to keep tapping on the app on the phone because what you were getting when you tapped on that app was information about what other people are thinking about you. And that hits the psychological wiring of our brains in an incredibly deep and direct way that makes it essentially irresistible, right? If you tell me, okay, if you hit this app, you might see some interesting information about what your friends are up to. Okay, that's kind of interesting, but it's not going to make you compulsively hit that. If I instead say, there's information on there about what other people are thinking about you. All you got to do is hit that F and you're (laughs) going to get that information. We can't resist that. Our social circuitry does not allow us to resist that. If we were used to resisting that, we would not have survived and passed down our genes 100,000 years ago. It goes against every one of our instincts of sociality. Once Facebook began that shift, everyone followed suit. And the whole attention economy sphere really changed. The social media experience in particular really changed. So it was all about incoming information. So Twitter ads, retweets. Instagram ads, you have the favorite hearts. They invest millions of dollars in facial recognition research so that they can auto-tag photos. Why would you want to auto-tag photos? It's more social approval indicators coming in. You know, someone has posted a photo that has you in it. They wanted to have the richest possible stream of incoming social approval indicators. There's other things they did. There was some interface design, so they did some attention engineering. This is the way the scrolling works or the colors of the, the notifications. They did some serious research to make that as compelling as possible. There was also the, the innovation of using machine learning algorithms to help select what to show you. The, to try to make your engagement time longer. Uh, so that was also really useful. But I think that the key transformation that changed us from, oh, I go on Facebook occasionally to see what my friends are up to into I go on it by default mm-hmm. at every down moment was this shift that is now about incoming social approval indicators. And that completely changed our relationships with our phone. And I think it was that more than anything else that has driven people to this point where they say, look, I don't hate the thing I'm doing in the moment when I'm looking at my phone, but I really hate the fact that I've looked at it five hours today. And it, it, and because you know that drive to the phone for that validation happened, I feel like now everyone just turns to their phone for all the answers. So whether it's the Google, the Facebook, mm-hmm. the Instagram, the app, Like it's just a one-stop shop for everything you need instead of maybe having a meaningful conversation about, you know, something that you're going through rather than Googling, like, what do you do when you're sad after a breakup? Right. It's outsourcing of everything in our life, you know? Well, and it's not just outsourcing. It's also beginning to replace. Yeah. Mm. This is something I discovered. So as part of the book, I did this experiment where I recruited, ended up being over 1500 people to take a month away from all of it. So I used the term optional, personal, digital technology, but basically social media, streaming media, uh, online news, basically anything that wasn't crucial for work or you know crucial for like finding when your daughter needed to be picked up from, from school or something like this. But anything that was optional. So were email Slack included? These are not included. So I see that as work. So okay, this was just it. in your personal life, essentially the things on your phone. Got it. And one of the big lessons that came back from this is people were shocked to discover the degree to which they had allowed this to push everything else out. And the two things, especially for younger people, that were almost crippling in the first days of doing this 30 days of absence was the boredom and the loneliness. Mm. 
And there's this discovery that, okay, maybe almost any activity, the type of high quality leisure activities that require energy, but we're, we're deeply satisfying how, what to do with your time that, you know, I'm going to go out there and do this. I'm going to meet these people. I'm going to work on this project. I'm going to help this community group. That gets really pushed to the side. It can be almost unbearable then to be faced with time. And then the loneliness factor, the degree to which the sort of shallower back and forth connections on the phone had come to take over almost the totality of people's social lives. And when they took it away, there was almost a crippling loneliness, which is quite different than the sort of cycle of solitude and deep connection, solitude and deep connection that really defines the way that humans have always been social. And so it's really, uh, the phone has pushed out of people's lives a lot of things that are incredibly important for a deeply satisfying human experience and replace them with these, these shallower simulacrum of those type of experiences. And you, you feel this sort of existential gnawing. Like, I know this is not quite the same as what I used to do, but it's just, it's if you look at it all the time, it's distracting enough, it's pleasing enough that you can essentially paper that over and ignore it. And so when I had those 1,500 people basically rip that paper off the hole, it was a sort of a existentially fraught, but really meaningful experience for them. Mm, that's beautiful. And, you know, I was thinking about the Facebook thing a little bit before you talked about that. Do you think that there's like a, a responsibility that a company like that has as it relates to their end users because they're so impactful on physiological parts of us? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Sean Parker, the founding president came out a couple of years ago oh. and, and he basically did a mea culpa. He said, look, we're hackers. We were hacking your brain. Feel bad about it. It's like, that's what we do. Yeah. Didn't he say that he doesn't let his kids on it or something? Yeah. And that's common with a lot of, I mean, this, oh. this, this came out of uh, Nick Bilton's reporting on Steve Jobs back before he died. The fact that Steve Jobs sent his kids to Woodruff schools where you don't use any technology and you spend time outside. And it turned out that these were actually quite popular among Silicon Valley executives. And Jobs told Bilton, like, my kids aren't allowed to use iPads. No, of course not. Not, not till they're older. So the responsibility question is, is an interesting one. The, the problem is, the way I see it is, it's like going to ExxonMobil, yeah. right? And saying, uh, oil and natural gas is bad for the environment. You, you shouldn't extract oil and natural gas. And they would say, well, this is our business. Mm-hmm. That's what we do. And I think that's the problem. Facebook, for example, they mine data and attention. And they're really good at it. They're, they're, cap right now is about twice that of ExxonMobil. They're worth about $500 billion, mm-hmm. which is about twice the market cap of ExxonMobil. Their entire business model is extracting as much time and attention as possible. And I think it's built to a substantial degree uh, among the fact that they're sort of hacking people's psychologies. So to them, I don't think there's any way they could make any significant improvement along those lines without just uh, drastically reducing their bottom line, which actually legally they're not even allowed to do because of their, their shareholder responsibility. Oh, wow. And I think, and I don't know if this is true, but it's, it's, it's a bit of a guess of mine. I mean, I, I, the fact that the shift in the conversation around, let's say, things like Facebook right now is focusing much more on things like privacy and more recently, content. Yeah. It's bad news for Facebook because it brings a lot of negative attention. But I also think it's good news as far as they're concerned because it takes the attention away from the one thing they can't do anything about which is their product being addictive. That's the thing I think they don't want to talk about because they can't do anything about that without significantly reducing their revenue. Mm. They can work on privacy without significantly working their revenue. They can work on content moderation without significantly reducing their revenue. But if they change their product so we no longer feel like we need to check it all the time, they're in trouble. I worked with a lot of people for digital minimalism where we went through and got very intentional about their Facebook use. Most people discovered 
in about 20 minutes a week, they can get about 95% of the value they're getting out of Facebook. You know, twice a week, they go on. There's a couple of certain things to do, a couple of people to keep up with, a couple of Facebook groups, and that's it. And they're getting 95% of the value. That'd be devastating for Facebook if everyone started doing that. You wow. Really just did what you needed to do to get the value out of it as opposed to using it two to three hours a day. Mm. Uh, that's the end of that company, basically. Yeah. And you, you mentioned something too that actually was like one of my later questions was thinking about the future of tech and AI. What do you think the effect of AI is on deep work? Do you think it increases the value of it or how do you think it affects it? Well, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question because I think there's a, an underreported angle that I don't know if it's something we should be worried or excited about. But you know, I'm, I'm convinced that as we move farther along into this age of knowledge work, we're going to get better at identifying and maximizing thought, cognitive thought, producing value with the brain. One of the ways we're going to get a huge bump, I think, is that AI is going to get to a point where it can take the shallower, more distracting stuff off your plate. So instead of having to check email once every six minutes, like the average knowledge worker does, you maybe have an AI bot that talks to other people's AI bots and figures that stuff out for you so that you can actually spend more time just thinking about the things that human brains do well. So I think the positive side of that is that you know for those type of creative class workers, work is going to be more satisfying and meaningful because you can actually just focus on the hard stuff that you're good at. The part that worries me is what's going to be the impact of jumping up productivity that far. So if I run a, a law firm, for example, if I only need half as many lawyers to produce the same amount of briefs because now I have AI preventing them from losing so many cycles to email, maybe I fire half of the lawyers. If I run an ad agency and, and now three creative directors can do the work of 12 because they no longer have to be tied in the slack and their brain can actually operate at full capacity, it might actually lead to a contraction of the creative fields. So I'm not sure that creative workers are as safe as they think from AI. They're not going to be automated, but the stuff that's making us all so unproductive is, and suddenly we're not going to need as many of us. Mm. I'd love um, to dig into the idea of boredom. Yeah. And, you know, when people, I, I feel like my mom said to me before, like, don't say you're bored. Like, don't use the word bored. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. what is that? You know, yeah. I, I don't fe ever feel bored. Like, that's not something like I feel. But I'm just curious as to what you found is productive about that feeling or time and people can look at it differently. Well, the important thing about boredom is that it's a very strong human drive. I mean, it really does feel uncomfortable to be bored. And so whenever there's a really strong human drive, something that makes us feel very strongly about something, that usually means there's an important reason for it, right? So evolution doesn't endow us with these really strong drives unless there's some reason why it actually wastes resources. So what's the, what's the purpose of boredom? Well, my theory is that, you know, a problem that humans had to overcome is that like most animals are energy conserving. You know, your instinct is I want to conserve energy uh, because who knows where I'm going to get my next meal, but things like hunger might get you to get up and go hunt. Well, what separates humans from other animals, among other things, is that we go off and do sort of optional work. We create things, we build things, we innovate things, we build, you know, art, we build cities, we build governments, we build philosophy. How do we motivate ourselves to do that? How do we get over our natural state of energy conservation? I think it's boredom. I think this was the point of boredom, was to get us to do things that are hard, optional, but ultimately very meaningful. Mm. And so this is what I think one of the problems is when we now have the ability to subvert every moment of boredom instantaneously because we have 
billions of dollars of tech, technology investment that have all gone into this, this little glass rectangle that's going to give me the perfect thing to see that'll get rid of my boredom in the moment. But I think from a, a human flourishing perspective, this is the equivalent of what junk food does with hunger. You're hungry, you have the strong drive. Junk food can, in the moment, subvert that and make you feel less hungry, but in the long run, it's not going to be good for you. And so I think this is the issue with, well, why not just get rid of every moment of boredom by looking at your phone? It's because that boredom is there for a reason. It's to get you to to get up and do the hard thing you otherwise wouldn't that ultimately is going to be more important. And so you know, I I recommend to people, especially when they go through this 30-day process I talk about, is that they listen to their boredom. That they say, okay, what is this driving me to do? What type of activity is going to make is making this boredom go away when I don't have my phone? And that that's actually a really important signal about themselves and what they're craving. Mm. What did you say when in your findings? What was some of the the most value you found from when people do deep work? Um, well, it's it's more satisfying, so we don't want to. I don't want to gloss that over. Just as, aside from the output, humans, for whatever reason, seem to be quite satisfied by concentrating intensely on something. This hits some buttons in our brain that mm-hmm. feels good. I mean, it goes all the way back to the sort of the original, you know, craftsman building the sphere, the artists in the caves of Lascaux. There's something about concentrating on one thing that feels good. So it's 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 just a more satisfying way of working. More concretely, what you get out of something like deep work in a professional setting is that you produce so much higher with your brain when you have freedom from distraction. I mean, it's like you're taking some sort of neurotropic drug. It's like you're on some sort of of super Adderall or something like this. And because what we forget is when you context switch, so what most people do when they work on something hard is they're mainly working on that hard thing except for the quick check of the inbox and then they're back to the hard thing and then the quick check of the phone and then they're back to the hard thing. And it feels like, look, I'm mainly working on this thing. I'm not multitasking, but the, there's a cost, a non-trivial cost to that context switching. Looking at your inbox and coming back, even if you only glance at that inbox for 30 seconds, has a huge cognitive toll. It leaves a, an effect that's called attention residue that really slows down your cognitive performance. And so compared to that way of working, If you're working deeply, which again, the key to deep work is not just that you're focusing, but there are no context switching distractions. Relatively speaking, it's like your brain is operating on a higher plane. And so it really is as if you're taking some sort of advanced limitless style drug. Uh, The the factor that comes up a lot when you study good deep deep workers is factor of two. This comes up a lot. They produce whatever the important thing is in their job. They produce it at a rate of uh, two times faster than most other people. Wow. And it's less time, correct? Because you spend, what, two days out of five in deep work? Well, it depends on the time of year, mm-hmm. what's going on. Um, but yeah, so in a semester like now when I'm teaching probably two and a, two and a half days out of five, uh, I'm, I'm deep working. Yeah, you can get uh, a lot more done per hour without the context shifts. Because again, the context shift to non-deep working slows down your brains. You get rid of that negative effect, you can accomplish the same thing faster, and in the same amount of time, you can produce more value. So the quality of what you produce is going to be better. Wow. Do your students think you're the coolest? No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just thinking like of myself in college. If I had this, this idea of deep work and what that looks like and why it's important and how good it feels, I mean... Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, for college students, it's a superpower. I mean, it, I truly, mean, the, 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 the formula, when I was a college student, I wrote a book on college student study habits, how like top. Same. Yeah, <laughs> yeah same. <Okay>. MIT, same. <laughs> <laughs> but the key formula that whole book was built on is that, I guess it was like work produced or studying accomplished is time 
spent times intensity of focus. So even way back then, that's what came up when I was studying wow. students for this book is that that's how you hack studying is you take the intensity of focus piece. It's easier to make that higher than it is to make time spent working higher because you, you only have so much time. And, and, and so what most students were doing is they try to pull all-nighters, which means their intensity of focus goes down and down and down. And then the number of hours they need to get the same amount of work really grows. Whereas the really top students, they come in like a laser beam. They lock themselves away. They're away from all distractions. And the time it takes them to do the same amount of studying is like a fraction. So yeah, if you're a college student out there listening to it, it's, it's like that old saying, you know, you don't need to outrun a bear. You just need to outrun your friend when the bear is trying to get you. Yeah. College students are so bad at studying that if you do even just a little bit of this, it's going to seem like you're one of the top students on campus. Wow. I have a question about like the outside of technology, but I can assume that technology affects the emotional body or things that you might be working through within relationships and within like inner, your inner world, um, how much does that affect deep work and how can we work with that? So say, you know, someone just broke up with their boyfriend and they're like kind of in the period where they're feeling really low, depressed or feeling like, you know, like it's not closed. It's still kind of like an open-ended thing. How does that affect deep work? And then how can we work with it? Well, there's this interesting case study, I think it was last week. So the, the week before we're recording this, the Wall Street Journal wrote this article about a company in Germany. And it's a 16-person technology-type company. And the founder of this company decided that he wanted to do five-hour workdays. So it's 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. Uh, so they, they wanted to make this work because he thought there was a lot of wasted time during the day. So how are they going to make 8 a.m. to the, the 1 p.m. work? One of the changes they put in the place that made this possible is they shut off social media access. So there, there's two pieces to that. At this company, uh, you keep your phone in your backpack so you don't have your smartphone with you and then you don't have access to social media. This played a big role in actually allowing people to get the same amount of work done in three less hours. And I think it's in part because of the effects you're talking about that I think that, that the ability to to move back and forth so quickly between the, let's say, the personal psychological realm and the work realm and to go back and forth, back and forth throughout the day is a load that I think is really hard for the brain. And when there's some separation, like, okay, I'm, I'm sort of in this space as a space of work and it has some separation from the person psychological. And then when work is over, I can go back to that. I think it's probably much easier to sustain concentration or, or actually get things done. Wow. And even of issues of like the heart. So it's not necessarily the technology. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, that definitely makes, there's a lot of things that makes it harder. Yeah. So let's say you're going through, let's say you're grieving much mm-hmm. harder to do deep work. Let's say you're going through yeah. heartbreak, much harder to do deep work. Obviously if you're sick, it's much harder mm-hmm. uh, to do deep work. I, I hear from a lot of, you know, I've, I've uh, three young kids. So I hear from a lot of new parents and say, well, how can I, how can I get my, my deep work back to where it was? And I say, you can wait till your kids get a little old. <laughs> so, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of factors. Yeah. There's all sorts of factors yeah. that affect the ability to do deep work. Um, but actually, I think it's really important that we think about those. And it's part of the importance of actually having a name for this type of work and understanding its value. Because then, you know, sometimes this matters because there could be factors that are making it really hard for certain people to do this type of work. But if you don't know that this work is important, you don't know that it's an issue. And so just having a name for this type of effort and how valuable it is, I think, makes it easier to manage around it. The vocabulary is kind of half the battle with this topic. 
Yeah, and I think too, when I think about that, there's so much of it that relates to to a mindfulness practice, you know. And I think you talked a little bit about in another in one interview that I listened of yours was trying the practice of walking and holding your attention onto one thing related to work and trying to work through that one during your walk. So as in, as the same with mindfulness meditation, you bring yourself back to that each time you kind of lose it. And I kind of think about it as it relates to an emotional situation that you're going through and the ability to do deep work. You kind of need to bring yourself back to, to the subject, even though you may veer off and it's just the practice of that's really important. There was something that I heard you say that really struck me and I thought it was very interesting. And it was related to the semantics of appointments versus deep work in our day to day and how it's more acceptable for someone to hear that you have an appointment, you know, maybe from one to three thirty when you're doing your deep work than it is to say that you're doing deep work. I just want for you to expand upon that and see if that there's anything that we can do as, you know, a community of listeners um, to support people in their efforts to do more deep work. Well, so I think, for example, if you manage people, deep work should be explicitly managed. Right? The, the question shouldn't be, why didn't you answer my email? The question should be, uh, how much deep work did you get done this week? And not only how much, but what's the right amount? And so I think one of the most effective ideas, after, so after that book came out, one of the most effective ideas just based on reader feedback was where I suggested somewhere in there, talk to whoever supervises you. And if you run your own thing, kind of have this conversation with yourself and try to get an answer to the question of what fraction of my hours in a typical work week should be deep. And there's no one answer to it, right? It really depends on what type of job you do. Uh, But figure out what's going to be best for your job and then measure. And if you're falling short of it, then it's great. Okay, what changes do we need to make so so that you actually hit that target? This approach seems to work really well because it's positive, you know, instead of coming in and pointing out the negative, like talking to your boss and saying, uh, will you stop bothering me? <laughs> Don't schedule so many meetings. Stop emailing me. This is too distracting. You're pointing out a negative, which puts people in the defensive. If it's instead the positive, oh, we're coming up with a strategy for me to optimize how much value I produce for the team and for the organization. Everyone's on board. And so, I mean, this is one thing I think we need to do is explicitly manage this. I think this is a good way of doing it. Yeah, yeah, something to think. We're kind of newly managing a team. So it's something to think about because we ourselves sometimes feel like we can't get into deep work mm-hmm. because we're kind of managing. Yeah. And then the opposite happens where maybe the team, I don't know explicitly, mm-hmm. but might not feel like they can do deep work because we're emailing or checking in or, hey, did you catch that email or whatever? So yeah. that's a. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Are, are you, do you work with, with organizations on that mm-hmm. and like coaching, you know, CEOs? Uh, I do some. Yeah, I just I do a fair amount of speaking yeah, to the organizations, okay. um, and you know I'm working on this new book that really goes pretty deep into it. Actually, wow! So you know, deep work, it, it, the book Deep Work gets at the the idea of deep work is important. It's undervalued. It's a huge advantage, and then the practical sections of deep work are much more focused on the individual. You know, what can you do mm-hmm. to try to get better at deep working, to increase the skill, to try to get more of it into your working life? This new book I'm working on is about uh, how in the future we can build organizations from scratch to be on, the, I think, the very obvious goal of trying to actually optimize the what I call attention capital. But basically, the brains that you have on your team and knowledge work are the source of all the value. What does it look like to build a team or an organization from scratch where the goal is how do we actually sustainably get the most value out of these brains? And it looks really different. It looks really different than we, what, what we do today. In fact, I'm, I'm convinced 
25 years from now, we're going to look back at how we work today. And so you did what? You, you, yeah. you sent emails like 150 times a day? Yeah. Don't you make a living trying to think your brain? It's the Honestly. same way The same way it looked in 1914. You know, Henry Ford in 1914, after he got the continuous line assembly line running, and it dropped the, the labor hours required to build a Model T from 12 and a half to 93 minutes. Uh, him in 1914 looking back to 1913 when they were building the cars in the, with the craft method, which is like we're building a car right here. And we bring stuff over to it and we assemble it and we build another car over there. We build another car over there. You know, mm-hmm. Suddenly, once they had that shift, they said, well, why would you ever build cars that way? It's 10 times slower. But until you have the shift, you don't know. I think we're like the old car factories right now. They say, well, why would you ever try to produce valuable things with human brains and yet insist that those human brains service communication channels constantly throughout the day? It makes no sense. You're paying all this money for these human brains. You're paying all this money to build buildings and air condition them and put coffee into them so that these human brains can sit there and do what they're supposed to do. And then they have to check Slack once every three minutes. It's, it, it makes no sense. It's like starting a professional sports team and insisting your athletes smoke. It's like completely <laughs> counterproductive. The hard thing is, though, is you can't just say, oh, let's just check email less often because this is how most people actually run their organization. So the real trick here is you actually have to take that and replace it with something else. And it's the replacing it with something else where things get a little tricky. Mm. Is there a correlation between, because I'm thinking like if most of us work within these expectations and institutions where email, Slack, all this stuff is not allowing us to do deep work. Has there been a correlation between like unhappiness, depression, just because the feeling of I can't keep up, I can't be productive. I can't yeah. meet my goals. Yeah. Well, I, I just finished a chapter for the new book that's titled Emails Making Us Miserable. So I went through all this research and basically there's very strong signals from multiple different directions that indicate the more time you have to spend servicing what they call information communication technologies in the workplace, so Slack and email, the unhealthier you're going to be and the unhappier you're going to be. There's, there's a lot of reasons for it, but, but the fundamental idea is we're not wired for A, to be communicating all the time, but B, we're not wired to do it via linguistic means, meaning purely text. So there's actually, it's pretty interesting once you get into the research. There's, there's sort of a couple things going on. One, uh, text by itself is a terrible way for humans to communicate. In fact, you know, most of the, the information that happens when you're actually communicating with someone face-to-face is non-linguistic. Hmm. It has to do with pacing, intonation, body language. Uh, we have, it's the, they're, they're called social circuits. And some of them don't even use the brain. It comes right into the limbic systems or right into the, the, the autonomic nervous system. And so when you, when you rip all of that information out and put communication just into words, things that really didn't exist until about 10,000 years ago at the very earliest, way, bef- you know, way too new for our brains to know a lot about it, it's incredibly frustrating. The other issue is, uh, you get into this research, we, we've evolved to, to live in relatively small tribes and to take one-on-one interaction incredibly important. In fact, it is crucial to our survival. They, they do studies with extant hunter-gatherer tribes right now, and you can see that the, you can have uh, reproductive fitness directly correlates to your one-on-one interactions, managing those correctly. We take those very seriously. So what happens then, we say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take these humans that have evolved that way. And we're going to give them an inbox. So there's people trying to talk to them. And we're going to contrive it so that you can't possibly keep up with it all. And so at all times, you know there's one-on-one interactions that are trying to happen that you're ignoring or not able to service. Even though you know rationally, it's okay. 
they know I might not get back to them. We have clear email, clear norms or whatever. They know I might not respond right away. The deeper part of our brain gets really unhappy about that. The fact that an inbox is filling and we can't keep up with it, the fact that there's a text message waiting on the phone we haven't answered makes that deeper paleolithic part of our brain really unhappy. And so you can do this in the lab. There's this devious experiment they do where they say, uh, we're gonna, they put on heart rate monitors and you think you're doing some test on the computer. And they say, uh, at some point during the experiment, the experimenter comes in and says, oh, you know, your phone is messing with oh the wireless gosh, signals. So. So we just gotta, we got to just move it away from the monitor. And they only have people with iPhones do this because the iPhone, you can turn it out of do not disturb on the outside. So they turn it off, do not disturb surreptitiously and put it across the room. And then they go on, you're doing the test and then they call it. And they, now you have all the heart rate monitors, all the stuff is on you because you think it's, so they can now see what happens. Now, this is a case where you had your phone on do not disturb. Like you, you're in an experiment that you're being paid for. You had no, your expectation was oh, my phone is in do not disturb. Like I'm not, it's fine. I'm, I know I'm going to miss calls. And yet when you hear the call, all of the stress reactions jump up off the chart. It's because we're wired to, we're wired to don't ignore the tribe member who's trying to talk to you because that could be the difference between starvation or not when there's the famine next year. So this factor is going on. And so we have this low grade feeling of just ugh, anxiety in part because <laughs> it's torture yeah. for the social circuits of our brain to give us way more communication, one-on-one communication than we can handle. And you just constantly feel like essentially in some reduced sense, your survival is at risk. And so that makes us miserable as well. And then there's the fact that uh, being incredibly fragmented in your time is a very unnatural way to operate. And it just makes us incredibly frustrated. That you're like, I just can't get this thing done. I just need a moment here to think this through and do this. And I can't because I have to keep going back and service all these ongoing conversations. Long answer to a short question. It makes us miserable. Yeah. Yeah. Feel wow. My life is ruined. <laughs> um, I actually want to transition a little bit to be so good they can't ignore you. Ooh. I think this is just so relevant to our audience. A lot of them are in corporate jobs that they work that maybe they're unhappy, maybe they're not. But I think we are the generation that really grew up and cultivated and saw a lot of follow your dreams, follow your passions, quit your job. You only live once that kind of mentality. And I, you know, fell victim to that in quotes at one point too, I quit my job to pursue my dream and it didn't really fit or make sense in the way that I had thought or had been sold to me at the time. So I'd love to talk about your passions and why it's just too simple to follow your passion. Yeah. Right. So, so the set the timeline so the book you're talking about, So Good They Can't Ignore You, this was in 2012. And, and, and actually, that book led directly to deep work in 2016, which led directly to digital minimalism in 2019. They're all kind of connected. So it all goes back to this original book. Uh, so 2012 is significant because you know when I was researching that book was when I was about to go into the academic job market. Yeah, because it takes a while to write a book for it to come out. I did most of the work on this book in 2010 and 2011. I was on the job market in 2011. What do you mean job market, I guess? So uh, interviewing for professorships. Got it. Yeah. So if you tell a young person to follow your passion, you're actually probably reducing the probability that they end up passionate about their work. So not only was it relatively new advice, it turns out to be pretty bad advice. And the reason is, is that it greatly simplifies the process by which people actually build true satisfaction in their work. It has very little to do with a match 
that I've found this perfect job for some genetic encoding of the fact that I'm, whatever reason, my genes say I'm supposed to be a social media brand manager for a midsize environmental you know, clothing <laughs> company or something. like Somehow that that's wired in your genes. If you find it, uh, th- there's no evidence that that's true. It simplifies the process of how you truly get satisfaction. So what happens is that a lot of people then go out there and they're early in a job and they say, well, I don't love this. So you say, well, according to the passion hypothesis, I must have have the wrong match. So let me switch to something else. And then, well, you know, I don't really love this. This is kind of hard and this is kind of annoying what I'm doing. So maybe this is not my match. Let me do something else. And what you uh, engender is chronic job hopping and anxiety. Whereas the alternative, so what I found is, and you know, again, I looking at the research literature and then just doing the simple thing of asking people their story. It's a key distinction. If you ask someone who loves their work, what's your advice? They'll tell you, follow your passion. Don't ask them their advice. Well, you ask them their story. Mm. And you find out that very few of them had a pre-existing passion that they followed. And what you, what you discover instead is a cultivation of passion that gets more and more intense over time. And usually, it's driven by skill. As you get better and better at something that's rare and valuable, you have more impact. You get a bigger feeling of mastery, both of which are incredibly satisfying. But also, more importantly, you gain control over your work the better you are, the more autonomy you gain in what you work, how you work on it, when you work on it. You combine those factors and you get a recipe for true passion. But it takes time. Mm. And so I think the better model, it's not if you get the right match, you have all that passion on day one. Not a lot of evidence for that. The better model is passion is something that you cultivate. It's something that you grow. That by approaching your career in the right way, you can increase over time your level of passion until you get to a point where you just love what you're doing. And then when someone says, what's your advice? You just say, glibly follow your passion. But what you probably really mean is follow the goal of ending up passionate about your work because it's really worth it. And that's really different than telling someone you have your passion already. It's just a matter of having the courage to match it to your job. It makes me think about like the one parenting to like the education system early on in a human's development, because I feel like we're given all of these options. We're told to go to that liberal, most people go to that liberal arts school, learn all the things and then figure out what you want. And I'm wondering like how much of it is innate and how much of it is nurture in terms of like say you're a kid and you're just naturally drawn to painting, you know, it's, I think the parents worry, will that be a viable career? So let me get them also into X, Y, and Z. And then that also might just do something to the brain and also the confidence in what they're innately good at. Can you speak to that? Especially having kids. Yeah. I'm curious what your experience is. Yeah. So, I mean, innate, innate talents, they're, they're on a spectrum, right? And so I think we're, we're too quick to simplify that and make it seem like there's something you're really good at and then that's just what you should do. There's actually an interaction with nature and nurture, which is a lot more complicated. Mm. So there are, of course, instances where someone maybe just has a prodigious talent for something. This is almost always the case if you look at, let's say, professional athletes. I mean, there's there's usually some sort of prodigious talent. It's often the case with uh, certain types of professional musicians where it's a really sort of skilled. There's some sort of just the way their fingers remove their dexterity. Um, but beyond some of these cases, there's usually a, a lot of back and forth. Uh, there's, there's a really interesting sort of famous paper in performance psychology called The Mundanity of Excellence, right? So like excellence being mundane. And it's a study of Olympic swimmers. 
And what they find is if you go back with Olympic swimmers, actually their, their breakout, where they first sort of get identified as someone who is Olympic caliber, like really talented swimmer, actually comes surprisingly late, like early adolescence. And in fact, a lot of Olympic caliber swimmers were sort of indifferent to swimming. They did it, but it wasn't like a particularly big part of their uh, identity when they were younger. And, and so it came later. Uh, the same thing is true for other types of musicians and mathematicians. There's been these interesting studies that find that what you often see instead is a cycle of uh, mastery motivation. So you have an inclination for something, or you have a push towards it just because, let's say, other people in your family do it, or whatever reason, you have some reason to, to admire this particular type of skill. That motivation gets you to do a little bit more practice than everyone else. Now you're a little bit better than everyone else. And now your motivation to practice gets a little higher because now you're someone who's like, oh, I'm kind of good at this. I'm better than my friends at this. And then that gets you to push to that next level. And you get these cycles of mastery. Whereas like for the swimmers, you know, the, once the cycle gets to, let's say, 12 or 13, now finally you're at a level where you can really start to see some sort of splits in ability. Um, but this tends to be more the rule, I think, is uh, skills develop over time. Passion and motivation often develops with the skills in this close loop, and initial proclivities or environment can help push you down one of those paths, but we too often look at where we end up and then imagine that we had that skill essentially latent at the very beginning. Yeah. I, I think, too, within you know the concept or idea that your passion should be your job, we really forget about the fact of if you create or make the, your passion, your job, that it might, you might not love it in the end. So I want to talk a little bit about that. You know, I think there is an assumption that if we make our passion, our job, that we will love it. Yeah. But that might not be true. Yeah. Well, it's almost a cliche in the literature uh, that when people take something, I guess they would describe as a passion and you, you make it a professionalized job that you often lose your interest in it. Right. So this is the the, the famous stories of the amateur bakers or amateur photographers who are, are miserable once they become the professional photographer or become the professional baker. But I, I would go even farther and would be even wary about using the term um, your passion or taking your passion uh, because it makes it seem like it is this uh, trait, like yeah. your hair color or your height or something. To like, Well, obviously you have a passion. The question is just what happens if you make the passion your job? The reality is it's much more complicated. There's There's different activities that we feel different ways about, different types of things we do that we like sometimes or don't like, different games, you know, aims to give us motivation, other aims that we don't, that we don't. And a job will mix a bunch of that different types of stuff together. And so I even try to get past even thinking about your passion as a noun, like it's something that you can point to. And I think of it more like uh, an adverb. I mean, you can kind of do things with passion. Uh, but the, the reality is much more complicated is that there's, there's activities and goals and aims that we all feel differently about and those feelings can change over time. And, and that's all very instructive in planning out your, your career, but it's more complicated than a attribute that particular jobs have. I'd love to bop back or bop forward to digital min minimalism yeah. for people because you know the reality is technology is not going anywhere. So can you give us some daily tips or hacks into how we can minimize our dependency on the digital, you know, whether it's on our phones, computers, whatever, yeah. what have you. Yeah. Well, I mean, essentially what, what I preach, having 
studied the various ways that people try to get at this problem of I spend too much time on my devices. It's starting to actually cause trouble in my life is what Mary Kondo does for your closets. What you should do for your phone, which it, it sounds a little bit glib, but actually underlying what Mary Kondo does is a very deep idea known as minimalism, which goes all the way back to the ancients. I mean, you can go back to Stoic philosophers talking about this. Thoreau has a very compelling case for minimalism in Walden. We see this in the voluntary simplicity movement. We see this, it comes up historically again and again. And, and foundational to minimalism is this idea that you focus on the things that are most valuable and don't waste focus on things that are less valuable. And so when it comes to your physical stuff, this is kind of obvious, right? So when your closet's overcluttered, you're supposed to take everything out of it and just put back in the stuff that you really like. The same thing is essentially what I preach for your phone. You, you take everything off, right? This is this 30-day period I talk about. It's emptying the proverbial closet. And then you only add back in the apps or services that really give you a lot of value. Now, the only twist is when you do that, bring them back with fences. So it's not just... I'm bringing back Instagram. It's I'm bringing back Instagram to do this. This is my fences around how and when I use Instagram because these ecosystems are so broad. Otherwise, you can get into trouble. So a digital minimalist, all they're trying to do is say, I want to put these tools to use for things I really care about. And if I do that, my life is going to be better than before these technologies existed. If I don't do that, though, if I'm not really careful, if I'm not really intentional about what I use, why I use it, and how I use it, then it's just going to take over and completely clutter up my life until I'm stressed out with all the stuff falling out of the closet door. Mm. And so that's essentially what I preach, is be very intentional about what you use, why you use it, and how you use it. And it sounds really simple, but it can have a sort of massively positive impact on the quality of your daily experience. Just to follow up, what do you think about the screen time feature on the iPhone now. It's like, it's weird because, yeah. because. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, screen, I have mixed feelings about screen time. The thing I think that's good about screen time is that it's taken a whole generation of smartphone users and has forced them to confront the reality of what's happening. One of the theories out there that I, I happen to subscribe to is that, you know, Apple added that because unlike uh, Android, which is owned by Google, which is an attention economy company, Apple doesn't directly make money off of people's time and attention. They make money off their devices. And so they could put that in their phone in a way that at first Google was much more worried about putting that in Android because the entire pitch of Android was this will make it easier for people to monetize the time and attention of users. And so I think it was partially Apple kind of thumbing its nose a little bit at Google. Um, so I think it's useful. I think it's useful in that way that it, it's it's given a wake up call. The thing I don't like about it, which is less reported, is that once they put screen time on the phones, they disable the ability of any third party app to do something similar. And so there was really good hardcore apps that really help you monitor and lock down your phone usage so you can't access these apps until the time you set. Really good apps like Freedom, suddenly overnight, they were no longer allowed to restrict access to apps on the iPhone. Only screen time is allowed to do it. But screen time is not nearly as strong as some of these other some of these apps. So the people who are really big, the aficionados I know that are really big on protecting their time and attention, have found that the things they use overnight don't work anymore. Really? Interesting. Hmm. What's the conspiracy there? <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg uh, somehow. I know, honestly. Um, how, like, how have you leveraged your work in your house like with your kids? Like, what's mm-hmm. that conversation with your family like, your wife? Like, how does this, 
how does this play off in your in your day to day with your family? So my kids are they're young, so it's not quite relevant yet about their technology. So I have three boys; the oldest is only six, mm-hmm. so they're not using smartphones. But what I do is I'm a, a big proponent now of this idea I learned from parents who had read Digital Minimalism and then talked to me on the book tour. This phone foyer method, where the idea is when you're at home, the phone goes at the table by your front door or wherever else you want to do it, but just it's alliterative to think of foyer and phone. And that's it. And if you need to use the phone, you go to the foyer, you go to the hallway by the front door to use it. And if you need to look something up, you go there and you use it. If you, if you have a call coming in or a text that's important, you put on the ringer. And if you hear it, then you can, you can go in there and check it. This is actually like a profoundly effective but simple strategy for families because what it teaches the kids is, oh, the phone is not a constant companion. Right? It's a tool Oh, we have the, it's great. We have Google. We want to look something up. Well, I'll go in there and I'll look it up. But when it's with you, what they see is that this is a constant companion. If anything, a competitor for your attention to the children. I look at this all the time. I have it all the time. I'm always going back to it. A lot of parents are very uncomfortable about this. And so you have this, it's essentially like rewiring <laughs> your wireless phone in some sense. It's almost like you're going back to the old days uh, where the phone was plugged into the wall. But I've been a big believer in that method. I don't want it with me when I'm at home. I'll use it, but I don't want my kids to see it as this thing that I feel like I need to have on me, on my person. Have you done any research on EMFs? Uh, I hear a lot about it. And like radiation stuff? Yeah, I, I hear a lot about it. So I haven't looked into it yeah. deeply, but it it does seem like it's following one of these curves yeah. right? where at first it's, you know, all these crazy Crazy people worried about whatever with their tinfoil hats. And then over time, it seems a little bit less crazy, a little bit less crazy. So I'm wary. That's the book after next. Yeah. <laughs> if, I can, if I can submit a request, yeah. that's my book after your next one. Yeah. Foil hats to blue, know, blue yeah, blockers. Yes. You should wear a foil hat. Yes. Yeah. Everyone in your book you signings the cover wearing the foil hats. Hat. Yeah. And, and, and Mark Zuckerberg is reading your thoughts. Uh, you can throw in me. another Facebook conspiracy. Yes, I know right? we do. Yeah. I'll have to show you this tweet um, after I know you're, not, you're on Twitter, but it's one of my favorites. It's actually a clip that they did when Mark Zuckerberg did a Q&A. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but he did a Q&A with, I think they're employees of Facebook. And someone was asking something about having her feelings hurt. And he said, you know, I can imagine that would hurt because, you know, you're human. I mean, I was human once. I mean, I am human. (laughs) And it was like word for word, the most awkward and uncomfortable thing about how he was human, but he is human. And it was like, what? You see sparks coming out of his circuit uh, board. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly yeah. my point, but it was Alien. just very, very interesting. <laughs> well, but it's also an interesting point because we, we were so quick to just accept this storyline that obviously what we're doing on our phone is like the new evolution of human sociality and it's more advanced and this and that, but we forget that what we're doing on our phone was basically this 19-year-old guy, yeah, computer that nerd in a, in a dorms idea. I mean, that seems like the last person you turn to and said, okay, you need to be in charge of how 1.5 billion people socialize. Yeah. It doesn't seem like the person you would, you would look to. And, and, but we were so quick to write the storyline, yeah. which is why until recently, I used to get so much pushback about some of my social media skepticism. And, and maybe I was getting too close to home, but I would always say, it just seems so surprising. Why are we so quick to accept that this is so fundamental? It seems so kind of arbitrary. I mean, we're used to it, but you just go back in time six years and it's kind of weird how much time we spend with these interfaces, yeah. and these kind of cryptic you know, motions. And from the outside, the whole thing seems a little bit seems a little bit strange, like yeah. the type of thing that a 19-year-old would come up with. 
You know what's super strange? Is I want to know your thoughts on this. Have you seen Clear? It's like the thing, thing at the airport that's above TSA. Yeah. So you pay $80 and they have your eye print. Okay. Eyeballs. Don't you think that's kind of creepy? That's kind of, Can you see a laser? Yeah. So you see something and it, it scans your eye print and that's how it tells you. I'm like, crazy. I'm, I, every time they ask me, like, you want to try clear? I'm like, I actually don't want the government having my eye print thing. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that bizarre? It is bizarre. But I mean, now. Yeah. Yeah. Face I don't facial recognition yeah. either. I yeah. don't do thumbprint facial recognition. I'm literally doing nothing weird, but I just feel like that information is stored somewhere that I don't, I don't want to know what they're doing with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm wearing a fa- uh, screen time. You know that information. I mean, they probably you're taking, right. They're of taking course. it anyways. I'm sure, but but still, you know, I'm not the only one seeing this report. You're right. With so many books having come out and coming out, what has your experience been like with publishers and you not being very active mm. on social media? Because I know now that's such a thing. Yeah. Obviously, your your books are incredible, so they they don't need it. It's but I'm curious because they're so hyper focused on that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an interesting world. I mean, the, there's a couple truths that seem true. One is that email lists, the, to be a little bit insider baseball, but email lists convert much higher than social media follower counts. Love that. Social media is actually a, a pretty bad converter in a lot of cases. Let's say book sales. It's going from let's say followers to what percentage of them buy the book. It's it's pretty low. But the other thing I've I've discovered about social media is you know the way it helps sell books, and it does help sell books. Uh, but the way it helps sell books is not you telling your followers, buy my book. It's that it allows other people to talk about your book. And so actually me not being on social media doesn't actually mean that I don't reap the benefits of social media and book sales, which is kind of ironic given what I write about. But I think a lot of other authors have the same experience. I mean, I have a large online audience. I, I run a website, have a blog. It's more old school, but I have a I have a large audience. They all knew when my book was coming out. And so, you know, if I had a social media account and they were also my followers there, it wouldn't be sort of new information. But when like Charlemagne the God tweets out or does Instagram, like you have to buy this book. Now that's a whole new audience and it's more authentic. And so anyways, that is great reference be... choice. <laughs> <laughs> Not what I expected from you, Cal. No, he's a fan. I got a, he, is he? Yeah, I, went on I the mean, breakfast club. We talked no about No way. It. Yeah. You went on breakfast club? Sure. <laughs> wow. <I laughs> you lo- actually crushed the podcast game. You're yeah. very, <laughs> so smart. You're ve- I, and that's it. You're very good on them. And that's, uh, you know, and thinking about you being on podcasts is a lot of the reason why we love podcasts yeah. is because you can hear the intonation. You can hear, yep. you know, your cadence, your pacing. And that's why, you know, I had a blog before and that's why I moved over to podcasts because there's just so much value in hearing the tone, you know, just the excitement within a podcast. And I think it's beautiful what you do on them. Yeah. Podcasts are great. I love them. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what a way to, to do books because I mean, it's exactly the information you want if you're thinking about buying a book. Like, well, let me actually hear the author talk about this for a while. Like, let's give him or her some time to actually uh, expound on what's going on, why they wrote the book. And yeah, I think that's much more powerful, let's say, than uh, than any particular tweet or, yeah. or Instagram post, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, the, but the answer to the original question, my publishers, for so good they can't ignore you, were weirded out by the fact I didn't have social media. And in fact, we had that first meeting where they brought in the 
social media oh. expert to like help me optimize it was like a 24 year old it was definitely a 24 year old and and that was an awkward meeting <laughs> um, but that book wasn't about technology now that I'm known now that I'm known for writing about it they they like it because they can they can use it as a hook it's part of the package, <laughs> part of the package. <laughs> <laughs> also I probably finished the books faster because of I mean it, so. I can only imagine <laughs> That's yeah. the whole thing what are you really excited about right now like what's something within culture that you're excited about seeing and then within your life? So, I mean, I'm up to my, my eyeballs now in this, in this new book. And it's really interesting though, because I'm, I mean, I'm essentially trying to make this huge argument that the way we work and knowledge work is nonsensical and that it's going to absolutely change. Uh, that what we do today, and in particular, this sort of completely fragmented hyper communication approach to work is going to be almost embarrassing. 15 years from now. And it's just been really interesting getting into this topic. I mean, I spent the last week learning a lot about, I mean, I mentioned it earlier, but I spent a lot of time learning about, you know, Henry Ford's rise of the assembly line and how we build cars. Spent a lot of time understanding about human sociality and what email does to to our, our sense of anxiety. Spending a lot of time with these interesting entrepreneurs and companies that are trying really aggressive different things where, you know, you don't have an email address, for example. And how would you run a company? It turns out, turns out you can. And so I'm big on that topic because impact and scale. The way we work is making almost everyone miserable. And we're talking about something like 50% of the U.S. workforce. And it just seems like a really huge topic. This always having to be connected, always sending emails, always sending Slack. Your workday is fragmented. You have to follow this at home. You have to follow this on the weekends. You have to follow this on vacation. Is just... The, the misery index that this is creating is really, really high. I mean, just from a utilitarian perspective, it's creating a lot of unnecessary unhappiness. And so that's been exciting for me recently is trying to try to push that. I mean, I know this thing is going to roll downhill one day and trying to push that whatever overloaded boxcar closer and closer to the edge of the hill to do what I can to help get that, that momentum get that momentum rolling. Last thing, it's just interesting with the people that get uh, upset or like have feedback because I don't know what the justification for from their perspective is. And I just feel like, like you said earlier when you were talking about um, when people have a strong drive towards something, whether that's negative or positive, that there's something there, like there's truth. So it just seems so obvious to me when someone is like a very strong, has a strong opinion as it relates to your work, that there's truth that truth in an action that they're ignoring. Yeah. Well, so it's, it's interesting to see how the, the strong reactions they've shifted. So um, I, I certainly used to get, at least we talked particularly, let's say, about the types of things in digital minimalism. So I get different types of pushbacks about deep work, different types of pushback about so good. Um, but for, for digital minimalism, you know, those type of topics, the, the pushback, it used to be these technologies are fundamentally important. And there seemed to be this weird sort of paternalistic fear that if I push skepticism of some of these technologies, though the critics understood the issues that I would somehow be tricking people who didn't understand as well into not reaping the benefits of using this technology or that technology. I, I did this interview once. This was after that, that one op-ed that got everyone upset. I did this interview on the CBC, so the Canadian kind of like the Canadian NPR. Mm-hmm. And they're like, can you come on and talk about your article? This is common. You know, if an op-ed does well, it, radio takes its lead and it was live 
and then they ambushed me mm. on the air. They said, okay, now joining us, we have like this social media expert from whatever and this artist who, uh, you know, who, who markets her work using social media. And the, the sense of the ambush was if we show evidence that social media has use, then you can't be skeptical about it. You need to be quiet about the skepticism. But the interesting thing about that interview is at some point the artist said, uh, she's like, you know, the odd thing is, is I find myself having to take really long breaks from Facebook because otherwise I don't get the art done. You're like, I've, I know. <laughs> and, 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 that, and that like summed up the, the place where, where people are sort of now, which is, which is, it's not the simplistic thing that this is good or bad. It's like, man, I'm using this thing when I'm with my kids or I'm on this mm-hmm. thing so much, I'm not getting my art done. And I think everyone, everyone is there now. So now the new, the kind of the new place where um, I'm getting pushed back. So if you look at like, like Gia Tolentino's review of the book in the New Yorker, for example, is that I focus on grassroots responses to the negative cultural aspects of social media, whereas all of the energy right now is in systemic responses. Yep. What law wow. can we pass? What regulation can we can we do? Uh, let's. We need to focus on how can we stop these companies from 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 doing these things. But. My observations, what I've learned being out there and being in the world is that I actually think you have, the users have way more leverage. I think it's a a much quicker route to reforming the role of social media in our culture. A much quicker route is a user revolt Mm -hmm. than somehow trying to, it's essentially an impossible issue to legislate. It's really very difficult to try to legislate the issues away from social media. Uh, And I think part of the bias that's going on here is like, as I learned during my book tour, is that people in media, so the people who are writing about this and and, and doing these interviews, to them, social media is absolutely at the center of what they do. It's just absolutely at the center of what they do. So I think they have a really hard time seeing social media as it exists today as anything other than just absolutely at the cornerstone of our democracy and something that has to be there as it is. So if we don't reform it through regulation, it's going to be disaster. But when you talk to normal people, it plays a much more loose and dispensable role in their life. Like, oh, I like this, I like doing this, but if you, you know, if if I didn't have Facebook, well, you know, whatever. Like, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. Or like, yeah, I have Twitter, but I've really stopped using it. And I think the individual users have so much more leverage over these companies than I think than some people actually recognize. And that the, the quickest route to getting immediate improvement in people's lives is going straight to the people. And saying, tomorrow you can change your relationship with these tools, take them off your phone, do it on your computer, have a plan, do a Mary Kondo style declutter, whatever, like right away, your life is much better than if a lot of people do this, it can just bring down from, from, from underneath the whole model of we have to exploit every last minute of you know, attention we can get out of our users. And so that's interesting. That's where the critiques are now is that the sort of establishment media scene does not like my grassroots approach. I guess it's not the... Uh, that's not the, the, the preferred approach right now. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to see. So it shifted from you're wrong to be critiquing mm-hmm. <laughs> into you're, you're uh, critiquing it the, the wrong way. Uh, but I find it really interesting. So I just think it's an interesting comment too on like how people wait to be saved or led or yeah. like, you know, this legislation to be passed because what you can't delete the shit off your phone. Like I'm, you know, it's, and I've done it too, where, mm -hmm. you know, you kind of just lean on like the powers that be to Mm -hmm. figure it out and then we'll just follow it. Well, that's what's unique. I think about social media. So it is never, I think, I I think this is true. Um, 
Never in the history of American commerce has there been companies that are so valuable from a just market cap perspective that were also so dispensable in people's lives. Because typically when you have a company that is just a behemoth like Standard Oil, it's because oil is absolutely essential to the economy or American steel. Uh, Steel was needed to basically grow all the cities and build all the railroads. It was incredibly indispensable. And that's where all of their value came from. Uh, Facebook is worth twice ExxonMobil, but it's entirely dispensable. I mean, if I go up to someone and say, bad news, like I talked to your doctor, you're not allowed to use Facebook anymore. It doesn't really matter. Whereas if I come up to you and say bad news, like you can't use petroleum anymore, or you can't use steel, like it's actually an uh, an issue. And so when you hear, for example, uh, the comparison made to Standard Oil, like maybe what we need to do is break up the companies um, because, you know, it's anti-competitive. That's what we did Mm. for Standard Oil. The one thing that's different in those two cases is that we all depended on oil for our economy to run, but no one really depends on Facebook. Or anything. It's just a diversion. It's something that's kind of interesting. It has some value. Maybe you do some business advertising on it, but it's actually quite dispensable. And so that's why I think we have way more control here than if it's like this is the company that, you know, the monopoly that gives us electricity. And you have to have electricity. Mm. You really worry some about, you know, if this company was being exploitative. But these aren't that. It's it's something we've never seen before. I don't we've we've never seen something that's been this valuable that that its role in our lives is it's it's important, but it's also tangential. Yeah. It takes up a lot of our time, and yet the actual value we place on it is quite low. Yeah, uh, and so this is why exactly it is really not hard. I've now you know thousands and thousands of people have gone through the 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 process I talk about in digital minimalism. It's night and day. It takes about a month, and your relationship to these tools is completely different. And if any non-trivial fraction of these users did that, not only would their lives immediately get much better, it would be a huge blow to these social media companies, but my, not the, the harangue about this, but my other point, this is an article, uh, an, ar- an article I wrote for the New Yorker about the rise of independent social media. The business model of something like Facebook or Twitter is not fundamental. So what they're essentially doing is something that terrifies people like me that were sort of early internet boosters and internet geeks, which is the whole idea of the internet is that you can have all of these different networks run by different people, run by different countries, run by different companies, but we'll all agree to speak the same language. So we'll use the same protocol. So now everyone can talk to everyone. No one owns this. No one, it's all decentralized. Anyone, anywhere can talk to anyone. Incredibly powerful idea. Facebook came along and said, okay, we have a better idea. We're going to build our own private internet. We're going to own all the servers. They're going to be in these giant warehouses in Virginia and Colorado or whatever. We'll build our own private version of the internet that we think is a little bit easier to use. And let's just have everyone use our private version of the internet. Oh, and by the way, we're going to watch every single thing you do to try to make money off of it. That's actually the weird business model. You know, we have a completely decentralized, democratized internet that allows anyone to express themselves, find and connect to people. So this notion that we have to build private internets, that we have to have individual companies own north of a million servers that basically runs their own private version of the internet, and that we all have to to operate in these digital, you know, panopticons that are owned by these companies, that whole thing I think is kind of absurd. And so to me, today's state of affairs is what's so fragile. I don't see it as this like, well, obviously we are stuck in this world where we have to use these private internets owned by three companies. I see it as like, isn't this weird right now that so many people are using this weird private internet? Like that's not going to last. And so I guess I'm more optimistic. Are you talking about like the code? So they developed their own like code, like, all their own language. Computer. Yeah. I mean, so 
if you're Facebook thinks that they should basically, they have their own version of the internet. They own all the servers. They own all the networks. You connect to their data centers. That's wow. where everything is owned. Yeah. Whereas the original vision of the internet, which is still out there, right. is no one owns the whole thing. It's like free. Like I have my own server, for example, that my website's on. Anyone can talk to my server because I speak the official internet protocols. Right. Uh, but you might have your own server and this university has its own network and this, this company has their own network and they're all connected together. They all speak the same language. That's the internet. It's completely decentralized. No one owns it all. But everyone can talk to everyone else, which is a very powerful idea. And Facebook is basically saying, no, we're just going to build our own internet and we own it all. We own all the pipes, we own all the computers and you have to come inside our walled garden to use the internet. So it's the exact opposite of the original idea of the internet, which is let's connect everyone in a way that no one owns it. Wow. A lot of different people that we enable to talk with each other. And Facebook said, let's do the opposite. Let's connect everyone in a private network that that we own and we run and we can watch everything and, and do anything we want with it. To me, that's the anomaly what they're doing is sort of the anomalous thing. Right. Wow. And then with apps, with Apple, so did they create their own language to create apps? So with, so like Apple's, with Swift? Apple's well, yeah, Apple, Swift is, is sort of their own variation of, of C++. Yeah. I mean, what Apple's, Apple's walled garden is, uh, if you're going to build an app, it has to, you know, apps have to work in a very, particular way and we have to approve it right right uh, to run on the iphone so it had its own sort of non-democratizing power there like we, right. we control what the apps are we which ones we allow what they're allowed to do right which is different than say like a desktop computer model or something right there's you can sort of buy a program wow from anyone but i mean the main thing i'm i'm suspicious of is private internets i mean i mean i i'm surprised i didn't know that I love that stuff, that information, and I'm mm-hmm. glad that you shared that. Yeah, I so, actually didn't know that. Sorry to geek out a little bit. No, no. I mean, I tell you what. <laughs> I'm so happy You'd be here all day. I know. <laughs> You'd be here all day if it were, if it were me. Um, it's been, this has been so insightful. Thank you, truly. So how can people connect with your insight and books and all of that? Just because it is such a wealth of information and resources if people do want to do deep work, you know, digitally um, minimalize their life and ultimately be able to do more deep work, connect with people on a deeper level. Right. So the, just to help structure what we talked about real quickly. <laughs> Thanks for doing our job. <laughs> no, it's confusing because I write a bunch of books and they all overlap. Like, there's, there's a library. They all overlap. <laughs> they all overlap. So just to, so, First book is So Good They Can't Ignore You. That's about career satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Then you have Deep Work, which is about the power of focus in the workplace. And then there's Digital Minimalism, which is about uh, your relationship to technology outside of work. And then my website, calnewport.com. I'm a big blog nerd. You know, so I have my own server and I run my own Love WordPress, it. whatever, whatever. And I've been doing it since 2007. It's like a thousand posts on there. So all three of those topics... There's a ton that I've just written on there. The one thing you can't do is actually get in touch with me that easily sort of by design because I have no social media accounts or public-facing email addresses, but um, that's the trade-off, I guess. <laughs> the way I can write more books is that, that I'm, mm-hmm. a, I'm a bit of a hermit. Um, yeah, you know, more happy spending time with my kids than, mm. than yelling at people on Twitter. So I'm a little <laughs> bit hard to reach, uh, but my ideas are not hard to find. Mm, I love that. Well, your books have been so impactful for us. So we're so thankful you came. Appreciate it. Do you have a last question? Do you have a monetized newsletter? Um, 
So I have a newsletter. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if it's, I don't think it's monetized. You should monetize that baby. Yeah. You should honestly, like this, this is a I'm conversation like obs- we have to have. <laughs> Literally, I'm obsessed with people like you that are just so thoughtful and niche monetizing their newsletter because your insights are so valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's like, I just am obsessed. I'm like love monetized newsletters. I think they are so valuable and amazing, but thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Appreciate, appreciate it. it. Enjoyed it. Yeah. Right. We'll see you guys later. Bye. Bye. Cal Newport, you're number one, baby. Mm-hmm. Number one. Thanks for coming on Almost 30. We really appreciate it. Truly. Can't wait to um, you know, learn more about the upcoming book that you're writing. Yeah. I'll see you guys wait. in December at the live show in Los Angeles, almost30podcast.com slash tour. And here is the review of the week. Brilliant resource, five stars. The effort and care that's gone into creating and developing the show can be felt in the depth that's delivered in every episode. What Queens? That's from Gabriella Rosie. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you, sweetheart. Appreciate that. She's from Australia. Oh, great. Can't wait to see you. Love Your that. reviews really, you know, just bring us such light and love. And we really appreciate you guys taking the time to write them. They're the best. We love you. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.